Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about the great books. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Dr. Junius Johnson. And uh, Junius, what have you been uh, What have you been up to since our last episode, which feels like we recorded it a very long time ago? I think it's been a bit longer than normal. Um, I've been busy working on a um, leading the great divorce for an organization called Renovare, which is uh, focused on spiritual formation. So I've had a lot of fun writing uh, and recording podcast stuff for the great divorce. And I'm also getting um, some materials ready for Advent. As you look into um, an Advent devotional that I've been um, polishing off and that sort of a thing. So Excellent. Is this a continuation from the Advent one you did last year? Yeah. You released last year. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Good. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, that's great. The Great Divorce is fantastic. Uh, we just read through it with the uh, students from St. John's, some students from St. John's. Mm. We had like an, maybe eight or so students and it was awesome. Was, they've all read Dante. So it was a really good yeah. you know, conversation and stuff. Gosh, it's so good. <clears throat> well, maybe, uh, maybe a future entry in the classical mind. Maybe the uh, audience will pick it for their selection. Just going to throw that out there. There we go. That is always an option. That is always an option. <laughs> Um, put our fingers on the scale. We we have to be careful though that we don't violate the general will by our individual individual interests. That's true. Rousseau is looking over our shoulders as we speak. That's right. That's right. Speaking of Rousseau, we are reading Jean Jacques Rousseau's of the Social Contract. Um, which edition are you and translation are you using for this, uh, Junius? I have got the Penguin Classics by Christopher Bertram. Excellent. Same same thing on my end, though I do have to admit this is the first book for Classical Mind that I have ever listened to the LibriVox recording for. I was journeying from Baltimore to Richmond, Virginia a couple of weeks ago for an ordination mm. and was a little behind on my on my um, reading. And so I thought, well, I'll just plug it in. And I listen to everything on double speed. And so I was able to get through pretty good chunks of it. Um, I mean, I kind of knew the gist anyways, but um, anyway, so that was interesting that I, you know, I not a big fan of listening to books, but it, it worked out in this particular instance. Different readers for different chapters can be kind of weird though. Yeah. Well, and, and there's something, I suppose it's a season for everything. So um, everything has a proper use. There we go. There we go. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about the who's who behind the work. Who was Jean-Jacques Rousseau? Uh, he was an enlightenment thinker who lived from 1712 to 1778. He had a pretty big influence in his day, um, especially over the events that paused and 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 the way it unfolded up the French Revolution, which actually started the year right after he died, 1789. He grew up in an artisan family. Um, his father, grandfather, and brothers were all watchmakers. And so he had kind of an interesting view, I think, of class. His mother was upper class. His father was sort of middle class. And um, I think he, I think, Seeing sort of inequality uh, prompted him to do a lot of thinking about these things. And you can kind of tell that in um, in the social contract. He grew up in Geneva, which is kind of a, an interesting city. Um, for those who don't know, Geneva was the seat of, of one of the reformed movements during the Protestant Reformation. Um, it was very Calvinist and Protestant. And there was a kind of blending of church and state in that area. Um, John Calvin, the reformer, had quite a bit of sway over temporal matters. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that relationship sort of continued throughout. So growing up, he was raised by very Protestant parents in a very Protestant city. Um, in fact, his great, 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 great grandfather had actually been a publisher of Protestant tracts 
during the Reformation and fled to Geneva because the the Roman Catholics in France were trying to kill him. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he went there for asylum and uh, and made his home there. His mother's family, like I said, was upper class. Uh, she was raised by her uncle, who was a prominent Calvinist minister. Um, the the father's family had voting rights, but were not uh, as high up. Uh, Geneva was sort of an oligarchy at the time, mm. which again, you kind of get the feel in reading Rousseau that there's some reactionary aspects to how he was raised in that. Um, and so a big question in Geneva as he was and during his formative years had to do with the question of sovereignty. That is, um, to what degree do people get a say in exerting their own choice when it comes to government? Mm -hmm. And Rousseau's grandfather had actually got into some hot water. There was a guy named Pierre Fatio. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But he was a, a, a sort of democratic reformer in Geneva who is sort of famous for saying that a sovereign that never performs an act of sovereignty is an imaginary being. Mm. And so Rousseau's grandfather supported him and got in some trouble in Geneva for that. But in a weird turn of events, Rousseau actually became Roman Catholic for a time. <laughs> he, he ran away from Geneva and went to the neighboring town and basically lived with, for a short time, a Catholic priest. And he had an interesting kind of complicated and I think at times sexual relationship with an older Roman Catholic woman. I mean, older, he was like 17 and she was like 28, but mm. still older Roman Catholic woman who was sort of known for converting Protestants to Catholicism. And so she mm. converted him to Catholicism. They became lovers. Eventually, he attended seminary for a short time to potentially become a Roman Catholic priest, but eventually moved back to Geneva and reverted back to his Protestant upbringing. He, he reconverted to Protestantism in order to be able to resume his citizenship in Geneva because you couldn't be a citizen as a Roman Catholic. Correct. I sort yeah. of think of Rousseau as the James Bond of the Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to describe him. And we'll see in a, in a little while when he converted back to Protestantism, he may have he may have rejected some of the structures of Roman Catholicism, but he did not embrace what we might call classical Protestant theology either. So he was sort of doing his own thing by that time. Um, in fact, he actually got banished from Geneva after he came back. He was condemned by both Protestants and Catholics because he had um, basically argued for a position of indifference towards the particular claims made by religion, instead arguing for a more general position that religion is good because it helps people acquire virtues and it has sort of a positive role in shaping society. Um, and this this really rubbed a lot of the Protestants and Catholics the wrong way. One of those rare times where they can agree on something. That's right. Well, and as we'll see when we get to the religion section towards the end of the work, he doesn't leave a lot of space for what most traditional Protestants and Catholics would recognize as institutional religion in his no. ideal society. It's kind of a utilitarian view of religion. Like, yeah. like we should have religion insofar as it helps people be good citizens or whatever, but it's not really... We shouldn't really entertain the the claims made by religion seriously. Right. Um, one interesting thing we were talking about this right before we started. One kind of fascinating thing about him is that he was also an author, uh, not just a political theory, but also a novelist. And he wrote a novel called Julie or the New Heloise, which apparently helped him help develop the sort of literary movement of romanticism. Well, if, if you're if you haven't gotten around to reading the social contract yet, if you're listening to this ahead of your reading, uh, don't let that mislead you into right. expecting exciting prose because it's not exactly the most. It doesn't jump off the page at you. 
That's right. That's right. It's very similar to uh, John Stuart Mill's book, yeah. Utilitarianism, which we did in the first season. Uh, it is a short book, but it is hard to read. And and Social Contract was the same way. I thought it was not a page turner. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad we read it. I'm glad we read it. So the work itself uh, was published in 1762. So as you might imagine, a fairly revolutionary time. There's a lot of conversation with other political theorists. Um, Rousseau had been friends with, with Diderot, who was... Um, imprisoned for believing in things like atoms and natural selection on the grounds that he was a materialist. And so it was quite a, quite a time um, where people were wrestling with some very significant questions about the state and its relationship to individuals. And this work really did stand as a significant entry in the conversation of political philosophy in the Western canon. Um, so what is your experience with the text, Junius? Because I think this is the first time both of us have read it, but do you have any sort of pre prior experience with it? Uh, when I was in college, I had a roommate um, who was heavy into political theory. And that was, he was a political science major, and uh, and so he was always going on about things that I didn't really care about. Um, and he was a, a wonderful guy, still a good friend of mine, and, and we learned a lot from each other in the two years that we lived together. But um, my my first impressions of Rousseau would come from offhand comments he would make, or, or you know, it, the name would come up in the midst of his various lengthy comments about uh, what was going well or badly with government and politics and whatnot. So, so I, I had a tendency to kind of lump these Enlightenment political thinkers all together. You know, you see them in these collections from Rousseau to so and so, whatever, and. Um, and so spending time with the text and, and really reading it slowly and fairly carefully, um, it was interesting to note correspondences with the other Enlightenment writers I'm more familiar with, like my, you know, your Locke and him and some of those kind of guys, but also to note some interesting divergences. And so there, were, there was a, a novelty, a freshness about it, where I could see how in an age where people were getting really excited about ideas, and especially the kinds of ideas that would get you into trouble with the establishment, how this would um, this would really kind of be an exciting backroom thrill to yes. crack open your Rousseau and, and think about some of these things. And uh, Rousseau and Hume were friends for uh, quite a bit of time. I think they did have a falling out, and they both, at some point, maybe wanted to reconcile, but they wanted the other person to make the first move, and mm. so they never did. But they were they were pals, and Hume was very supportive of, of Rousseau for the most mm. part. Um, so, yes, it's very interesting. Um, I'll say I really I mean, I, I've heard the term social contract. I've heard Rousseau's name thrown about um, when I posted this. I, when I started reading it, I posted a picture of it to my um, Instagram and Facebook stories and had a friend uh, reply. I'll take books that screwed up the world for four hundred dollars, Alex. <laughs> but he never did respond to my follow up, asking him to explain why he felt that way about it, though. I can venture, <laughs> I think, to guess perhaps. And as we go, you might <laughs> I think listeners might uh, at least recognize a cautious skepticism in on our parts. <laughs> so let's let's begin with sort of a fundamental. Idea about the social contract uh, contract and this is not a an idea that's unique to Rousseau but he does have a somewhat unique articulation of it and that is the state of nature mm. state of nature generally when political philosophers try to describe a state of nature what they're doing is a hypothetical reconstruction of how human life may have existed prior to 
civil society as we experience it today. Yep. And so there were sort of different and competing visions of, of what that looks like. And you might understand intuitively that there's a connection between whatever anthropology you hold and how you will conceptualize the state of nature. Mm -hmm. So Rousseau tends to actually be a bit more moderate on what the state of nature entailed than some other thinkers who treated on the subject, like Hobbes, for example, in mm. his work Leviathan, describes the state of nature as one of chaos and domination in which the individual is perpetually at war with everyone else. Mm -hmm. And this is like the world of Callicles from Gorgias. You know, it's like, well, the rich mm -hmm. should dispossess the poor because they can. Right. So they exert their strength and their will. Um, very proto-Nietzschean. Very proto-Nietzschean. Yes. Yeah. So that's a Hobbesian view. So in that case, civil society is a really good thing because it rescues us from this state of constant war, of barbarity, savagery. But it gets a little more... Can uh, a little more moderated as time goes on. Yeah, one of the things that's interestingly plays into that is that on you know all these enlightened figures with the age of exploration in their rearview mirror, um, they've had this myth of the noble savage that you see represented even in something like Shakespeare's The Tempest, um, where there's the sense that because these these quote unquote savages, what it takes to be savage is not to have been civilized, not to have gone through that whole process of, of belonging to a civil society. And um, there was a kind of wistfulness about these guys being still in the state of nature would preserve a kind of innocence that would not have, that it's not possible to have in civilized society. And so there was kind of a, an idealization of the savage and then Hobbes is a, you know, represents a reaction against that in the other direction. And think, well, if we're in a state of nature, nature's got red tooth and claw. You know, it's a very not a very good state to be in. And then you're seeing a sort of settling back in the direction of a, of a more somewhere between those two extremes. You're not saying the state of nature is simply idyllic and it'd be great if we could all go back to that. But at the same time, there are some certain definite advantages there. Uh, and um and we pay a heavy cost for civilization. Yeah, yeah. I think Locke begins that pendulum swing back a little bit. Like, I think he sees the state of nature as bound by by the law of nature, which mm -hmm. to him involves reason. Mm -hmm. And he argues that the kind of state of war that Hobbes describes is just simply not a reasonable state to live in, that that violence against others kind of violates our, our natural reason um mm -hmm. which i think is an interesting idea um rousseau i think begins uh, in a similar lockean place in that he sees the person as a blank slate so the person is not inherently good or bad necessarily mm -hmm. um but rather we all have these kind of impulses towards self-preservation and empathy and sometimes those things compete with each other and so mm -hmm the way that we work them out can vary situation to situation and person to person. So it could be that you see someone else, you know, in the wilderness and, and you think, Oh, they can help me, but you might also be scared of them. And you have that kind of fight or flight mentality. You run away or you feel like you have to fight them. Hmm. But for Rousseau, I mean, the very book begins with the idea that man is everywhere in chains. Yeah. So this idea that society then is, Kind of the third stage of a development there's a sort of brutishness there's this kind of noble savage idea and then there's society and you almost get the feel that he does prefer the middle kind of noble savage stage 
but that it's not really attainable. And maybe there's something to that. I feel like we all do this a little bit. You know, if you could be on a desert island with your five favorite books or five favorite films, like which would you choose? We kind of like to conceive of ourselves abstracted from society, except the few parts of it that we like. Yeah, that's right. I was just thinking about this, this that famous line that man is born free and is everywhere in chains. Um, and the, the, the way that I had always heard it quoted before was uh, man is born free, but everywhere he goes is in chains. And as I was reading this translation, I was struck that it sounded much more like he is born free, but we just we we discover him everywhere we see him to be in chains. Um, which is a bit of a different idea. Not that he's bound to stumble into chains anywhere he goes, but rather we're in a paradoxical situation where something has happened between birth and where we find him that has what left him in chains in all these different places. And that that translation seems to me, I, I was about just scanning the French trying to find the passage, but the translation seems to me to be more consistent with the argument that's developing through this, the story as a whole, right? And so it's there's this the, the fundamental problem that the work is trying to address is how is it that the inherent freedom of man is immediately and and universally dominated such that you can't find a man who is actually free in the way that he's born? Um, and that's sort of the, the problematic to which the social contract, it, it's not simply meant to be, it's not presented maybe even primarily as a solution to that puzzle, but rather as explanation for that riddle. Right. Sure, sure. And and within that, we can understand his view of society a little better, I think, which is that society develops as humans become more disconnected from nature and more interconnected and reliant on others, mm. mm -hmm. out of which arise certain features like private property. Mm-hmm which to Rousseau, private property is somewhat of an absurd idea that only ever perpetuates some form of inequality and is a complete and arbitrary fiction. Mm -hmm. um, but that interconnectedness and dependence creates threats to freedom. I mean, I, I don't think we have to get super specific on this because it's a whole can of worms, but I think we came to a realization of this fact during COVID a little mm -hmm. bit more. You know, the world is so interconnected that if you take a flight, you're exposing not only yourself, but potentially your whole community mm -hmm. to this. And then the, the decisions that are made in your community can have real impacts on other people. And so there was this kind of tension between collective good and individual freedom that I mm -hmm. think Rousseau is identifying in his day. And that seems to be carried over into our day. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there's always the, the, the question of sovereignty in the sense of my own personal sovereignty you know where is to what where can i fix boundaries of my being that others can't violate um and it becomes uh it's you would think it would be a straightforward question right i mean i have my rights to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness or whatever you want to say those are but then when you try to put those on the ground um to the extent that your life intersects the lives of others you're going to have muddy fuzzy boundaries to your being that's going to make it unclear exactly what you can legitimately do. Right. Right. And that was, that's why that time was so hard, I think for all of us, because we were all trying to answer those questions mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's fuzzy. There's also a sense in which we should read 
Rousseau's account of the state of nature as a reaction to the doctrine of total depravity, which is a, a really cornerstone idea in the Calvinist milieu in which he was raised. So John Calvin says that all parts of man's soul were possessed by sin after Adam deserted the foundation, the fountain of righteousness. For not only did a lower appetite seduce him, but unspeakable impiety occur, occupied the very citadel of his mind and pride penetrated to the depths of his heart. So I think a reform perspective, and and maybe you can fill this out a little bit, Junius, but a reform perspective really emphasizes the wickedness of humanity, not necessarily in saying that every person always picks the most evil thing possible, mm -hmm. but that no matter what the person does, even a moral action, it's still going to be tainted with this idea of sin. That's right. That's right. So the, the strongest version of total depravity, which was certainly around in Rousseau's day, would be that... Um, we are incapable of good action. Um, again, doesn't mean that we automatically choose the worst action, but the idea that you could do in, that anything you've done could be considered good is just a, a category error. It's a mistake. Um, but then the modified, the sort of softest version of total depravity um, would be to say that, well, it just touches everything. And so nothing you do is free of that taint. Um, even your good actions are also bad actions, right? Um, and so this doesn't leave any, um, this is going to become an interpretive principle that is going to run all the way through your anthropology and everything that you build upon your anthropology is you can't hope for good or consistent good from human beings, right? And this is something that the Enlightenment is struggling with because they very much are wanting to see, uh, thinkers like Rousseau are wanting to make space for, um, no, let's just, this is, human nature is just what it is, right? And and all of this other stuff, it, a lot of this stuff is uh, social impositions that come on top of it. But if we strip all that away, maybe what lies underneath is Locke and Rousseau, neutral, or in the case of some other thinkers, positively good. Yes, yes. And I think when Rousseau converts to Catholicism, he's trying to still operate within some sort of uh, establish theological boundaries to explain the human person, but maybe not in quite sev as severe terms. So the Council of Trent, for example, denies that the free will of the human person is completely extinguished. It's only diminished in its power that, that yes, people can achieve good works, even if they don't have what we might call saving faith. Yeah. Um, and so he takes a more moderate position as a Roman Catholic on that. But then, uh, you know, towards the end of his life, uh, he writes a book called On Education, and there is a a Roman priest as a character in the book, and he mm -hmm. actually puts the words of sort of Socinianism, which we now would call uh, Unitarianism, into the priest's mind and and words. Um, of course, Unitarianism rejects the Trinity, but also it rejects the doctrine of original sin, because even though Catholics and Reformed theologians might disagree on the extent of total depravity. They do believe in original sin. They do believe that human beings aren't what they should be. And so um, whatever the state of nature looks like for a Catholic or a Reformed theologian, there's always going to be that reality to reckon with. Whereas for Rousseau, the state of nature is almost a kind of pre-moral state. Yeah. There yeah. can be no morality because there's no social constructs for morality. Right. And there's, a, there's an interesting ambiguity there, which is... Um, when do you locate the state of nature? Because the state of nature is, is always hypothetical and no one's got a state of nature human in front of them anyway. Um, so it's a completely a, a thought experiment, frankly, um, that, that's carried out with shocking seriousness. But 
um, I got the feeling at several points that Rousseau wanted to locate the state of nature before the fall, um, which would be interesting, right? Because that would be a way that he could preserve an adherence to um, the religious orthodoxy of the day, but at the same time have his, you know, kind of have his cake and eat it too. But, but at the same, I don't think that's his final position though, because that would mean that the social aspects of it are either themselves the fall or are you know brought about by the fall. And and so I, I really do think he is he settles in on the more humanist line of setting aside the notion of a fall and just sort of treating human nature continuously from state of nature to now. But I, I got these moments when I thought, ooh, is he he's playing with a, a possibility here that would be interesting. Which does raise a whole host of questions about prelapsary and humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of theologians would still disagree with that in some ways insofar as um there's a positive goodness that's lost, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in the Christian account of the fall, usually. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting. So because of the state of nature, as humans come together, there's an increasing dependence on other human beings. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in, in, in a, in a very primitive context, like maybe it's me and my family. And maybe I go forage and hunt for my family. And maybe I'm the one who builds the shelter for my family, right? So I'm able to do things to the best of my ability. But as society comes together and as people come together, labor gets divided between people. So I say, oh, Junius, you're really good at hunting and I'm pretty good at building houses. So I'll build your family a house mm -hmm. right next to mine and you go hunt. And when you hunt, you bring enough food for all of us. And so that way we're sort of cooperating. The problem is what if I'm bad at my job or you're bad at your job? <laughs> and how do we maintain this kind of state of connectedness now in a positive way? These become really tricky issues. I mean, it could be that, you know, you uh, go and hunt enough food that, you know, you think, oh, well, I can give Wes and his family enough food, but, you know, I'm going to keep more for my family or something right. like that, right? So right. It, it, all these relations can break down. And, and so even if we establish them properly, it may be that maintaining them becomes impossible. Yeah. And so the yeah. social contract becomes a way for us to mediate our interactions with each other through what Rousseau likens to a body, yeah. a singular body. And what's interesting about that is that the, that body is not the government. Right. right. That body is the sovereign which is the will of the people, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing that we all have in common. Um, and the government is this mediating agency that serves to execute the sovereign's discerned will. And it's important to realize how revolutionary that idea is because he's writing in the context of not only monarchies, but monarchies that relied on divine right to rule. That's right. Yeah, this is this strongly undercuts. It says the monarch has no divine right. The monarch does not get to call themselves the sovereign. They actually are just functionaries. Right. There's a sort of delegatedness. I mean, he's not against monarchy, but he's mm -hmm. for more of a of a sort of constitutional monarchy or something where there's like like what you would maybe see in England or something today, where like the the monarch becomes a sort of figurehead for the body or a representative of the body. But, but again, there's, um, they're not wagging the tail, you know, it's the opposite. Right. Right. Um, and he's, he's in conversation with a couple of guys that I haven't read and Grotius comes up a lot early on here, who I take it as a giant of the time. Um, 
but one of the things that he says here in chapter five of book one is um, uh, um, let's see what bit did I want. Um, a, a people, Godius says, can give itself to a king. According to Godius, therefore, a people is a people before giving itself to a king. This very gift is a civil act, assuming some public deliberation. So before examining the act whereby a people elects a king, it would be useful to examine the act by virtue of which a people is a people. See, Grotius doesn't draw the second thing. Grotius is just saying that a people can give themselves to a king. And then Rousseau is saying an implication of what you've claimed, Grotius, is that they were already a people before that. And so you claim to be giving an account of the genesis of sovereign authority, but in fact, you're assuming sovereign authority and only talking about how that gets invested in a government in order to execute it. Yeah, that's quite clever. Yes, it's yes, it is. And later he'll talk about not only the different peoples and their various stages of development might require different modes of government. So there's not one perfect mode of government. It just really depends on the context. But the different regions and different population sizes also will you know, affect which kind of government is best. So in some mm -hmm. cases, yeah, a strong monarch might be a better um, sort of investment for the people, whereas uh, in other places, a more democratic republic is a better uh, investment. But it really just depends on context. And was, am I remembering correctly that the kind of state that would be ideal for a democratic government would be a very small one? Yes, a very small one. Yes. <laughs> because you need to be able to have, the larger it is, the more democracy is the tyranny of the opinion of some over others. Right, right. And you do get this interesting, he kind of alludes to it in that section you just read from in book one, chapter five, that um, that there is in this a priori existence of a people, yes. a sort of obligation of the minority to submit to the majority. That's right, that's right. And then he says at the end of that, the law of voting by plurality, is itself established by convention and assumes unanimity on at least one occasion. Namely, we've all agreed that we'll vote by plurality. <laughs> That's right. This is why the concept of like a sovereign citizen becomes kind of a weird cognitive dissonance. I think for Rousseau, it's like that's kind of an impossibility, actually. Yeah. And one of the things that yeah, we, we spoke about it being a bit dry to read, but on the other hand, it's actually incredibly funny at places. Um, and I find that if, if you read it with the awareness that a lot of it's really funny, I think just that one bit of information will help you to catch some of the snark that's coming off of this thing. He's a very snarky guy, yes. and he, he, has some very funny, he, <laughs> he has some very funny turns of phrase and whatnot. And so it's it's um, he's having fun writing this. And if you're if you're reading this for yourself, you need to look for that. If you're teaching this, draw the students in to um, just the kind of you know, incisive humor. It's similar to Socrates', Socrates irony, actually, yes. uh, the way that he does it. It's probably what he's learned it from, um, this notion of, you know, listen, guys, we had to agree at least once. Right? Yeah. We agreed to do it this way. Yes, yes. Which is always sort of, I guess, a more libertarian criticism of the social contract is that they did not ever consent. I mean, that is, and that's the argument of the sovereign citizen, right? I never consented to pay taxes. That's Those right. are just garnished from my wages. <laughs> Um, so the basic theory behind the social contract is that it's the best way for humans to exist in interconnected relations between each other while also maximizing human freedom. Mm. So the basic contour of the social contract is that we all place ourselves under the supreme will. Mm -hmm. 
and we become part of this body politic. And then we each receive every member of that body as part of the whole. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it may be that for the health of the body, you know, one part has to be treated in a perhaps more severe way or it has its own role to play. Yeah. But that's because the body as a whole recognizes it. I mean, we do this with our own bodies, right? Like for my health, I'm going to go uh, lift weights. And today exactly. I'm going to target my legs and my legs are going to be really sore and feel punished. But it's for the good of my body that that's I'm right. doing that. And so it doesn't actually limit freedom. It actually allows freedom to be possible. Otherwise, that dependence that we get locked into because I built your house and you're providing me food can actually be really dangerous to both of us. Yeah. Can, can we jump ahead and talk about what, what he means by freedom? Sure. No, I think that's exactly what we need to talk about now. Because I was going to ask you, would you describe Rousseau as an individualist, collectivist, or neither slash something else? But in <laughs> order to answer that question, we do have to define what he means by freedom. That's right. So it's there are some contradictions or at least paradoxes in the ways that he talks about freedom. Um, because freedom, in the way that he's understanding it, does not exclude slavery. Freedom does not exclude compulsion and force, right? And yet, slavery, simply put, is not a desirable thing. Force is not to be exercised in, in circumstances, uh, certain circumstances, right? And so, it's um, the first thing you have to do is sort of we have to do a sort of negative theology here and check your ideas of freedom at the door. Uh, because what he's thinking about is not going to be the libertarian freedom, perhaps, that we're used to thinking of. It's not going to be something like a, a power of opposites. You truly have the ability to choose A or not A. Um, it's not It's not any of those things. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get the kind of idea that it's the um, ability to move within some form of interconnectedness, but it has to be limited for it to be free. And like I said, he does talk in places about forcing people to be free, mm -hmm. which is sort of, again, another one of those paradoxes uh, that becomes interesting uh, the more yeah. you think about it. I, I, don't, I don't like this analogy. Um, I just want to say that up front because I don't, the problem with this analogy I'm about to make is that it makes it feel more um, modernist industrial than it is. So don't lean too much on that aspect of it, but it's as if, um, you know, to be a member of the body politic is to be part of a machine. And as a part of the machine, you have a function to perform within that machine. And your freedom consists in performing that function within the acceptable range of motion, right? The acceptable deviance. Because if you were not to do so, the machine would fall apart and grind to a halt. And you would find the result of that to be even less free than the freedom that you have before, right? So there's a sense in which, listen, the kind of freedom that we talk about these days, so you can have your own truth and like those sorts of things, that's right out. Um, but if there's to be any, <clears throat> if there's to be any freedom for you, it can only come about within this very circumscribed place. Because if you if people start moving outside of that boundary, then it's all going to fall apart, and then we're going to be we're going to find ourselves in a, in a Hobbesian quandary where everyone is just sort of grabbing what they can grab, and and freedom is is out the window. And this is where I do think maybe the work becomes maybe maybe um, approaches one of its strongest emphases in terms of persuasion mm. that that there is a sense in which I think that's true that that 
um, recognizing that we're interconnected mm -hmm. and then funneling that into a way that is both productive and allows for others to be other is helpful mm -hmm. uh, or can be helpful when it's deployed correctly. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, how that necessarily plays out can vary, I think. So, um, so for Rousseau, the general will, which is, I think, connected to this idea of freedom, takes the form of some sort of legislature that creates laws in the general sense. Mm -hmm. But the legislature does not adjudicate the application of those laws in the particular sense. So here, actually, I thought when he was talking about the general will, you can see some arguments for the separation of powers that become embedded in the Constitution mm -hmm. of the United States. Right. Yeah. We have the legislative, which makes the laws, but then how those laws get applied are not your congressman or woman, um, but rather the, a judge will tell yeah. you, oh, yeah, you violated that law or you didn't violate that law. Um, yeah. So in the general will, um, we get all of our collective interests in one place. Right. This is very different, though, and we have to make a strong distinction between the individual's interests. Mm -hmm. So like maybe we're talking about making a trade agreement with another country and 90% of the people in our country are against this trade agreement because they feel it disadvantages us. But I work for a company that will directly benefit from this trade agreement. Mm -hmm. And so I personally support the trade agreement mm -hmm. when it goes up for vote. If those 90% of the people vote against it, then the general will has been expressed which is again, distinct from my individual will. Mm -hmm. And and the belief there is, actually, I'm not sure. I was gonna say the belief is that ultimately you, the dissenting individual will be better off for the general will being achieved. But I'm not sure that actually is part of the calculus because the, the way this is expressed, this is the beginning of chapter seven um, of book one. And this is the passage you've alluded to already. In order that the social pact should not be a vain formula. It tacitly incorporates a commitment that alone can give force to the rest. This is so this is without this commitment, the whole social pact is going to fall apart. Namely, that whosoever refuses to obey the general will shall be constrained to do so by the entire body. This means nothing other than that he shall be forced to be free. Right. And and I, I think it's not so much the claim that, hey, listen, Wesley, this is I know that you would make a lot of money if we make this agreement, but we need to not make this agreement and you don't see it yet, but down the road, this is going to be better for you too. Um, I think the primary thing it has in mind there is if Wesley's allowed to make this agreement, even though it's not the general will, it's going to unravel our society. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so the claim is that it's better for the society. And then we could make a, a secondary move to say, by the way, Wesley, don't you enjoy living in a free society? Don't you enjoy living in a society that's prospering? That will be better for you than all that money you were going to make before. But that's not really the point. We're not really doing it in order to get you, individual Wesley, your best good. We're doing it to keep you, Wesley, from unraveling the general will. Right. So in this way, I mean, the analogy to the body is probably helpful. I mean, there are some cases in which a hand has to be cut off mm -hmm. or a part has to be dismembered for the health of the body. Right. So if you have a, a sort of sickly part of the body that threatens the 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 integrity of it, then, yeah, yeah, you have to deal with that for the good of the body. Yeah. And he does talk about this in terms of punishing criminals at times. I think mm -hmm. the same metaphor comes up, but you could also see how this applies to rogue interests. 
Yeah, that's right. It's very. It reminds me very much of the Republic when Socrates has finished laying out the f sort of first version, the first vision of the Guardians, and then there's an objection that says, "You've made the Guardians miserable." You know, they're in a sense they rule the city, and yet you've denied them access to all the things that make it worth being a part of it. They, they can't have gold. They can't have silver. They can't have their own homes and their own wives and these other sorts of things. And and Socrates says, "Well, even if that's true." And he's going to say later that it's not. But even if that's true, our job was to make a just city, to make a happy city, not happy individuals. Mm. And so it may be that some people will have to be unhappy for the city to be happy. He's going to go on and say later that actually this is a better way of living for the Guardians anyway, and they will be happy doing this. But um, but that's kind of a chilling moment when he says, yeah, it's I, I'm not here to make the individual people happy. I'm here to make the city happy. And this is a, a connection I wanted to kind of bring up. Actually, was the the Republic is a, is a book about justice, and this ancient title is on justice, um, and it's about justice for the individual soul. And they're only talking about a city, a polis, because the idea is that if you take the polis and blow it up big, you can see justice and injustice there more clearly, and that'll help us to get a handle on what justice and injustice in the soul is. I think that some of the things that make sense justice-wise in an individual person don't make sense would be un unjust in a society. It's fine for me to say I've got to put down certain desires or, or oppress certain parts of my body or whatnot in order to achieve virtue in a way that is not straightforwardly transferable to we've got to oppress or put down or cut off certain aspects of society in order to do that, right? But Socrates always keeps the individual soul, which is his goal, in mind throughout that. And if it makes a weird social theory, Plato is fine with that because Plato's going to write the laws later. And he's going to come around to more directly. This is what I think, how I think a city should be ordered. So then fast forward to Rousseau. And um, I, this is, a, I guess, a way of getting at your question. Is he an individualist or a collectiveness or collectivist or both or neither uh, or all of them, whatever. Um, it seems to me that he's got the opposite commitment to Socrates. He's talking about the society, not the individual. He's prepared to sacrifice the individual for the society precisely because he believes the society is the only uh, – ground in which the individual can flourish the only soil that can that can provide space for so on the one hand the answer that he's a collectivist recommends itself but i think we have to take very seriously his belief that if you let societies fall apart there's no scenario for individual happiness anymore right right and so it's this collectivism is necessary. You have to be forced to be free. We have to force you not to sell off the branch that we're all sitting on, uh, however unpleasant that may be for you, however much that may constrain you, because the alternative is really unthinkable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, maybe it would be good for us to move into another question, which happens sort of at the end of the book, and that is the place of religion in Rousseau's body politic. And 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 this is very interesting and I, I think makes some sense of where he stands contextually, the beginning of the Enlightenment, the end of these sort of really serious religious wars. I mean, having family members who were persecuted by various factions within Christendom at different times for different reasons. So Rousseau is not like some of his contemporaries, at least when he's writing this book, and that he sees religion as pointless or a facade or, um, or actually, no, I should say in that he sees it as bad. He doesn't see religion as bad, 
but he does take on a posture that I guess at best could be described as indifferent mm-hmm. to the particular truth claims made by any given religion. Mm-hmm. So to him, those are not the most important questions in terms of the body politic. Rather, he's for religion so long as it makes people more virtuous, not that it's actually true. Yeah, this is some of the things he says about this, but we're, we're in um, book four chapter eight of title of civil religion and if you've got the edition we've got i'm picking up on page 127 top of that page it says religion considered in relation to society which is either general or particular can also be divided into two kinds namely the religion of man and that of the citizen capital c the former the religion of man without temples without altars without rites limited to the purely inward cult of the supreme god and to the eternal duties of morality is the pure and simple religion of the gospel the true theism and what can be called natural divine right well there's enormous amounts of christians who would disagree that that is a description of the pure and simple religion of the gospel but um let's roll on to the next page um bottom of 128 where he's he's begins talking about Christianity in particular, um, and he's concerned about the fact that Christianity is going to have the effect of making people not care about the state anymore because it's such a spiritual religion. And so he kind of reaches the, the height of his pitch at the bottom of the page there. He says, Christianity is a holy spiritual religion concerned solely with heavenly things. The Christian's fatherland is not of this world. He does his duty, to be sure, but he does it with profound indifference as to the good or bad outcome of his efforts. Provided he has nothing with which to reproach himself, it matters little to him whether everything goes well or ill here below. If the state prospers, he scarcely dares to enjoy the public felicity, fearing to grow proud of his country's glory. If the state declines, he blesses the hand of God that weighs heavily upon his people. Which is a strange, I I think that's kind of a strange take. Yeah. Just in terms of the in terms of the history of how religion and, and the state has played out, if anything, it seems like the problem with Christianity in Rousseau's era and, and leading up to was an over-identification of religion and state. Yeah. Um and and there was in for many Christians a positive role for the state to occupy that maybe not was not identical with the church, but certainly played uh, a role. I mean, I'm thinking of Boethius who viewed his calling as a as a Christian philosopher, uh, so seriously he became a politician because that's what Socrates said you should do. Yeah, yeah, and and paid for it with his life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It, it is a strange thing, and it's 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 brought up in my mind a, a, a weird um, conundrum because, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. These are the types of passages Rousseau would lean on. To make his point see store your treasures in heaven not down here in the earthly state so if you lose your treasures down here what's that matter as long as your heavenly deposit is secure right and this is where you get the notion of pie in the sky religion on the other hand the whole point of christianity is that god came down right i mean incarnation is a movement into our world and into our particularities and specificities and so even though it's not only for this world that the Christian has hope, the Christian is not without concern, is not indifferent in Rousseau's terms to this world either. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and sacramental Christianity especially is deeply enmeshed in the particularities of this world and the ways that those become the vehicles for divine grace. Well, and I'm thinking, of, you know, at Mass every Sunday, we read the summary of the law, love God and love neighbor. 
those two are so interconnected to the Christian that the political sphere, while I think we have to be careful uh, in how we engage with that, is an avenue by which we love our neighbors. It's not the only one. It's not the sum total of it. But mm -hmm. certainly we make our calculations based on the fact that we want what's best for those who we're in community with, whether they're Christian or not. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, what we have to give account for is things done while in the body. Yeah. So that puts all the focus on doing right now and then the later time is the result but you can see how there's a there's a kind of i mean this would appeal very greatly to a lot of folks today who are disaffected with church and with the institution of religion is, is listen as long as you've got the love of the supreme god whatever name that goes by for you in your heart then you're going to be good this is very this is very fascinating to me because what he's concerned about is not what is the true religion, what is the best way to encounter religion, but what is the religion that will serve the state well? And the civil religion that he's describing that is free of dog dogma and temples and all these other sorts of things is very like the civil religion that is that a lot of people turn to in our day and age to try to find um, a safe space for religion in the public square. The public square. And even if... Uh... You know, I, I think Rousseau's account of religion in the, in what we might call liberal society, if true, actually, I think opens the door to the critique of someone like a Karl Marx, you know, a mm. hundred years later, or I guess less time than that, um, that religion becomes the opiate of the people. That's right. right. So if religion is just these sort of ethereal ideas, then, yeah, it's real easy to sort of use it as a mechanism of control. Right. And I think that there's a sense in which when Marx talks about that, he's actually being very, um, oh, what's the word? I don't know that he's being as critical of religion as we often read him to be there, but rather he's just describing what is what was often true in his culture that, you know, the state often sidles up to the, or the church often sidles up to the state for expedient purposes or because the state, you know, somehow controls it. I mean, you think about like some of the Orthodox churches during the rise of the Soviet Union, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, and so there's um, there become a lot of problems with the way that we engage. But I, I certainly see where if Rousseau is right, then I think Marx is also probably right that, yeah, if, if mm -hmm. that's all religion is, then yeah, why do we need it? It's just a way that's, for the state to tell us what to do. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Um, and that paves the way for Marx to say, well, so the church is one of the institutions of the proletariat that we've got to burn down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, no, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I was thinking maybe at this point, then it, it, it might work for us to start assessing a little bit some specifics about Rousseau. So mm -hmm. one of the first areas I think that that we should look at, you know, in terms of whether we think he's doing a good thing or a bad thing or, or maybe a mix of both is, is his anthropology. So what do we think about Rousseau's view of the human person? Yeah, and we were touched on this a little bit at the beginning. Um, he's a he's a bit optimistic uh, from the standpoint of you know, Christian theology, um, and, and also a bit optimistic from the standpoint of of, of probably just human experience. Um, you know, I I wonder what is the what is the account of why things go bad so often in human societies. Um, I'm not sure that I know where Rousseau would point to to explain why that happens, um, because it does seem that given the types of humans he seems to talk about um, who are um, 
kind of you know looking to looking to maximize the best good for themselves, but in a, in, in a way that is that is not inherently um, predatory on those around them. Um, and given that you have this natural tendency to sort of organize into societies and create a general will, um, why is there so much pressure against the general will among the individuals? Where does that really come from? And I'm just not sure where how Rousseau would answer that. Yeah, yeah. That kind of is related to one of my issues with him, which is that I think his way of characterizing the noble savage as this mm -hmm. kind of ideal state is actually in some ways a bit dehumanizing. Namely, mm -hmm. that I think interconnectedness is a feature of human experience, not necessarily a bug. Of mm -hmm. course, interconnectedness does come with negatives. I mean, that's almost certainly true. Just like being a noble savage would come with negatives as well. You know, you're disconnected from a society that can provide you goods and services that are oftentimes essential. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that however we view that to be human is to be connected with other humans mm -hmm. and you know how we work that out might vary person to person some people like to live in the middle of nowhere some people like to live in a city i'm more of a city person anyways but i think that um that there's something beautiful about that and i'm not sure that that rousseau can really account for the beauty of relationship to him the interconnectedness that we have is just sort of an historical accident that happened through a particular way of developing and we have to now kind of curtail it yeah um and so i i, I do have a little bit of a problem with that i think i would lean more towards maybe a personalist more towards a, a yeah an idea that's that sees us as interconnected and that, that's how we reach our telos i'm not me without you yeah so this is the that that they you know I guess we're going all the way back to to Aristotle right that the the human being man is a creature of the polis, um, and if we're not just we don't just happen to form societies all the time uh, you know it's not it's not an external thing not only is it not a bug it's also not adventitious it's not an accidental feature of human nature um, we come to understanding of self through the relation of family and we negotiate our lives off of other lives and we see our happiness in relation to other lives, whether that means in the reciprocity of love of all sorts or in, you know, in a, in a twisted way in domination or in being dominated, that we need to have someone to rule over or need to have someone to tell us what to do. It's not really about the ruling over the telling what to do. And if we dig down deep, it's really about finding that connection to other people, knowing that we're not alone. And it's one of the primary ways in which we we confess each of us individually that we're not enough, that we're not sufficient unto ourselves. And, and so what you're saying, what I really like here is that this is part of what it means to be human. This isn't an accidental feature of a fallen society. This isn't a, you know, because we happen to have been born into a society, this is hard coded into the human DNA. We were made for a relationship with others. And this can also explain then, I think the absolute horror of what as Christians we would call sin, but um, you know, uh, maybe a more humanistic or enlightenment thinker might call, uh, you know, a, a crime against humanity or something that these aren't just post civil society recognitions, mm -hmm. but that there's something so visceral about, about them that they cut against who we are, mm -hmm. that we see that and we think, yeah, that's not right. Yeah. There's gotta be something more than that. So we already kind of have built in this, this knowledge of what relationship can be or maybe an intuition of what a relationship can be which is why we're so disappointed and horrified when it comes out as less than what it should be yeah yeah that's right 
Yeah, we wouldn't. We, we react to the world with a great deal of of surprise, right? I mean, it's like we're, we're surprised that it's not more just. We're surprised that things don't go well and, and these other sorts of things. And that portray that that betrays that there is underlying there's some assumptions and some expectations about the way the world ought to be. And everyone coming to the world um, has their expectations thwarted, but we all bring these expectations to it. So let me ask you this: Do you think that his account of the individual and the collective goods? is satisfactory persuasive good uh no 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 <laughs> <laughs> explain your answer <laughs> show your work <laughs> well i think part of the problem and this is something that's been um you, you see this throughout the enlightenment figures and i'm and i'm thinking that it, it goes back to something aristotle said in the ethics but i <laughs> I think the problem is that we've got this false dichotomy whereby everything is either common and available for all or appropriated to the individual in such a way that now no one else has a claim on it. Um, and there, I'm not saying that there's not, a com that there's not necessarily a competitive relationship among physical goods because you know, I've got a bigger piece of cake and therefore you're gonna get a smaller piece of cake. There's only so much cake to go around. But I think the ease with which we transfer this from actual physical things to um, to other metaphorical things that may not be as obviously non-physical, such as rights. Um, how much land does a person have a right to? How much is too much? How much? Uh, how many resources does a person have a right to? How much happiness does a person have a right to? I think there might be some modalities here to observe that would um, at least mitigate the, um, the degree of competitiveness between my claim on some of these things and your claim on some of these things. That there's a lot more room for um, private use that does not have to be uh, in competition with availability to others. And that's the, that's the dream, right? Is that I can have as much as I want and it doesn't leave any less for you. Um, that's a pipe dream in this world that we live in, but is the is the the separation so stark on every part of the question as it is when it comes to cake? Right? Maybe everything isn't cake. Right. Right. I think you're. I think I agree, and I would maybe go one step further in a in a criticism of Rousseau on this, which is to say that in subjugating the individual good to the social good, while I certainly recognize is important um, that, you know, we're always in a context and that we always have to work out some arrangement to where, you know, we can make it work. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a sense in which Rousseau asks us to submit to what I might describe as a competing ecclesiology mm. here, that, that there is no real way to measure the telos of the general will beyond what it asserts mm -hmm. and from a christian classical sort of virtue ethic perspective i do have some issues with that because i'm not sure that just because the general will exerts itself one way instead of another that that is necessarily the best thing for the body politic now right. rousseau's argument <clears throat> that the integrity of the body politic is something worth 
fighting for, even if we disagree with the particular assertion of the general will, is something I do ultimately kind of agree with, but it's it's begrudgingly so. <laughs> that um, and I I mean I think we see this right in conversations now, like um among Christians, there's kind of a debate about what's called Christian nationalism and the relationship of of the church and the state, you know. And there are some Christians who really want to prioritize the church over the state to the point that I think they get into some really problematic areas, you know, um, that actually that kind of exertion of force over others is not a good thing, even if it is directed towards the good. So there's a part of me that my 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 general tendency is to say, well, it's better that we allow people to be people and to make choices and all those things for the integrity of our society, first of all, because I want to be able to make my choices. And so I don't want mm -hmm. someone to tell me, you know, <laughs> that I can't practice religion the way I do. Right. But at the same time, realizing that is a two edged sword. Mm -hmm. And so the way that Rousseau makes the general will a kind of ultimate end and arbitrator does give me a little bit of a check. Yeah. Even though I see the reason for it and and do sort of agree with it. Yeah, I, I, I find it chilling, you know, because there was a time when the general will agree that the people who looked like me were not people. Correct. And and could be kept like animals. Um, and there was a time when the general will felt, you know, tied us to England in ways that those uh, that were originally come, uh, folks originally came to feel were unacceptable. And so there's a question you always have to ask a political theorist, which is, What's your what's your um, philosophy of revolution? Right. Right. When does it make sense to rebel? And normally the question is put to governments, right, to rebel against the government. But what about re rebellion against the general will? Is there any space for uh, a withdrawal from the general will? And I think, you know, one thing Rousseau's life could tell us is that one way to do that is to get the heck out of Dodge. Right. You move to France. And when things get hot in France, you move back to Geneva. Um, and if and if you have to say you're Protestant in order to get to get your citizenship back in Geneva, so you can have a safe haven, you say that, right? Um, and and you, you submit to that, even though it's not what you really think, because that's going to get you this the safety you're looking for. But if that's so, right? I mean, if 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 the only recourse that good people have when the general will goes bad is to flee. I fear that's going to result in concentration of evil general will yeah. that can lead to something like we saw in Germany in the 30s and 40s. The one thing, and again, because I, I kind of, you know, like I said, I feel a little conflicted about this, but the one thing, I actually think it is his argument against slavery early on in the book mm. that gives me, again, that that kind of when I say I, I begrudgingly support it, it's like, yeah, I think the arguments he makes against slavery is actually pretty good. Mm. Um, so he says at the end of uh, book one, chapter four, however you look at things, the right to enslave is non-existent, not just because it is illegitimate, but because it's absurd and means nothing. The words slavery and right are contradictory. They mutually exclude one another, whether mm. from a man to a man or from a man to a people, this argument will always be equally preposterous. I make a convention with you entirely at your expense and entirely for my benefit, which I shall observe to whatever extent pleases me and which you will observe to whatever extent pleases me. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> which is some of that irony coming out a little bit. Hilarious. But I think but I think there's something there that in a society we have to from the beginning while we while we might disagree on what part the particular good looks like, we have to agree 
that there's some inherent dignity in the other person to be allowed to choose that as they as they see fit. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, from a Christian perspective, like you see someone who, you know, uh, gives into a vice, mm-hmm. you know, and you think, oh, man, you know, I hate to see you choose that. Yeah. But do I think you should do I think you should or do I think that the state should, you know, step in and tell you, no, you're not allowed to do that. You know, right. that's that's where it becomes um, tricky and hard and messy. And it's, it, you know, I don't know how I work that out, but I did appreciate the insistence on the, on the sort of inherent right and dignity of the other there. That's right. That I think there's something salvageable at least. Um, in some so, so at one end of the extreme, we've got Nazi Germany at the other end of the extreme, we've got the Spanish inquisition. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that, that is why I sometimes am a little nervous by the way that you hear some, you know, some people talk about these questions is that it, it can sound a little on the fascist side, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, liberalism can be kind of weird and contradictory and not perfect, but have you seen the other guys? Yeah. He's even, so I'll say it this way, then even if we grant to Rousseau the claim that some people have to be forced to be free, we must respond that people cannot be forced to be good. Right. 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 So like, so like in the American South, we can say slavery is bad and you're not going to do it, but you mm-hmm. can't prevent someone from being racist yeah. or you can't even prevent certain social systems from taking on, you know, uh, the problems of, of, of racism on a sort of systematic level. Right. We can, of course, fight against those for those very reasons that he articulates. But that's right. There's there's only so much liberalism can do there. It can only right. kind of try to carve out those spaces. It can't. And that's part of the contradiction. Peter Slaughterdeek has a book uh, called In the Shadow of Mount Sinai, where he talks about that. That's the fundamental uh, contradiction of liberalism, that it has to tolerate views that are intolerant to itself in order for it to work. Yeah. And so that's you can tell the breakdown of a true of of a true liberalism into what is a a, a parody liberalism when um, tolerance becomes intolerant. Right. Right. Exactly. So it becomes very tricky. And I feel like after this conversation, I'm no closer to solving that conundrum than at the beginning. In fact, maybe I'm further, but. Well, what's really great about this, Father Wesley, is that it is, you know, we're so lucky that none of this has any relation to anything happening in our country today. And so it's really nice that we can keep this at a purely intellectual level. Of course. Yes. (laughs) Well, listeners, I do hope you'll read Rousseau. I thought, you know, is it a hard read? Yeah. Is it exciting? Not really. Do I agree with most of what he says? Probably not. <laughs> it's a great endorsement. <laughs> is it is it good for you to read it? Yeah, I think so. So much of who we are and what we value as Westerners comes from comes funnels through here, right? Yeah. And so even though all those things Father Wesley said are true, if you want to understand how we got here, this is an important step in that process. So I, you know, there we go. Books that ruin the world for 400, right? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Um, for in notes, uh, we are, unless you've thought of something since we talked before recording, uh, we are going to co-sign on an endnote, And that is a, a lecture given by a theologian named Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, two archbishops ago. Um, his eyebrows are awesome. They have their own personality. Um, and he gave the John Paul II lecture called Faith on Mer- Modern Areopagus. And in it, he is sort of responding to some of those Christian critiques of liberalism with a, with a sort of defense of liberalism f- 
from a Christian perspective, saying, no, th there's actually a lot of good here that through liberalism, we can introduce rights language, which allows us to insist on the inherent dignity of other people, which as Christians is very important to us because we believe all are created in the image of God. And that that's an immutable part of who they are, that that never goes away. Um, and so I, I found that lecture to be very helpful um, in sussing some of these things out. Um, and so we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, uh, Lauren Williams is the, is the most distinguished and uh, undoubtedly most prolific theologian of our day. Um, and so he's he's worth listening to on a variety of topics, including this one. I love him so much. We named our youngest son after him. Oh, that's sweet. All right. Well, our next read, Junius, you want to give people a little uh, sneak peek? We're doing Chaucer next, right? Yes, we are. Oh, gosh, guys. So we get to read The Troll of Cinco Seida, uh, which is one of my favorite medieval books, um, which is why I chose it. And um, everyone, when you think about Chaucer, you think of the Canterbury Tales, and the Canterbury Tales are delightful and a lot of fun. But the masterwork is The Troilus. It's shorter than the Canterbury Tales. It's done, uh, unlike the Canterbury Tales. And, um, and he's really taking on um, some real central ideas. The two big themes that I would put in your head coming into this read are the theme of romantic love, um, the way that love, what are the duties of love and what are you willing to risk for it and what are the, what's the cost of that? Um, our, our notions of romance are grounded in the system of love that we're going to see exemplified in the Troilus. Um, and the, the, the way this thing develops, it's love by the book, quite literally. Um, and then the other thing is the question of freedom and destiny. Um, is they're, they're caught up in, this whole thing happens during the Trojan War. And so they're caught up in this um, scene that is the, the focus of history is on this war and the Greeks must win it. And the way Homer would talk about that is by talking about the gods, you know, fashioning things and controlling this. But, but this is, this is, they're, they're part of something so much bigger than they are. And we, the readers coming to it and Chaucer intends it this way, we know what the outcome is going to be overall. And so they're, they're, they're caught in a system that's falling apart already anyway. And it raises questions about the role of freedom um, and destiny precisely around how much space is there for lovers in this world. So um, it's a really, really uh, delightful book. I think book three is about the most delightful thing I've ever read um, in English literature. Um, and then and then it starts to go wrong. So uh, I hope you guys will, I hope you like it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I've not read it, so I can't wait to discuss it with you. Well, listeners, we appreciate you coming on this journey with us and reading alongside us and participating in conversations with us. You can jump deeper into conversation through our Substack. If you support us for, I think, $5 a month, you can uh, you can really uh, have, a, have a large voice in that saying. So you can become part of the collective general will um, yes. that overrules the, uh, the individual interest. So, <laughs> all right. Well, very good. Well, we will see you next month. And in the meantime, keep reading.